Your favorite PGA and LPGA legends, pros and top instructors are right here every week on Next on the Tee. Join Chris as the greats of the game share their stories, insights and playing lessons. Now, back to Chris and more of the show. All right, now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Keith Herschel. And let me remind you a little bit more about Keith's background. He is an Emmy Award-winning TV producer. He has produced shows for ESPN, ESPN2, and the Golf Channel. In fact, he was a part of the original team that started the Golf Channel back in 1995. He's written a couple of fantastic books. You heard me mention it a moment ago. Cover Me, Boys, I'm Going In, Tales of the Tube from a Broadcast Brat, uh, broadcast brat which, like I said, is the best book I've written in many, or read, I should say, in many years. He's also a, uh, written a, a fictional book called Big Flies. Both books, again, highly rated on Amazon.com. Keith joined me back at the end of August and is a, a, a guest that uh, my friend uh, Matthew Lawrence said, you've got to get this guy on your show because he's fantastic. And boy, was Matthew right. And I'm excited that Keith is back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Keith, thanks for coming back on the show. Oh, hello, Chris. Thanks a lot for uh, inviting me back. I really enjoyed our conversation last time. So I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, I appreciate it, Keith. So I want to start our time tonight, Keith, by you know going back to your time at ESPN, particularly when you guys launched ESPN2. You got to see a lot of great young talent come up through the ESPN rank, uh, ESPN ranks, like people like Stuart Scott, you know, uh, who uh, was on Sports Night. He and Susie Colber anchored that show. He replaced Keith Olbermann. Talk about watching Stuart coming onto the scene and, uh, you know, how the audience reacted to him. Uh, it was, it was, it was great. Those, those were, uh, those were amazing times. Both, both my time, uh, at the very, very initial stages of ESPN two and at the very, very beginning of the golf channel were just incredible experiences and, and, uh, times that, um, you know, I, I, I will never forget. And I got to ESPN two, uh, right after they had, um, they had launched. So, um, I was working, actually, I was working for Don Olmeyer and his production company in Los Angeles, producing all of ESPN's golf and auto racing. And he sold his company to ESPN. So we all became ESPN employees. I was kind of hoping to get out of Los Angeles. They offered me a gig in Bristol. I took it, you know, they were kind enough to kind of transfer me there. And I got there, uh, in, you know, just after uh, ESPN2 had launched. So I missed, sadly, I missed the, uh, the Keith Olbermann uh, leather jacket uh, <laughs> sports night experience. He had already gone back to Sports Center when I had gotten there and, uh, and left basically two great, amazing young anchors in Susie Colbert and Stuart Scott in charge of that show. And, uh, and they, were, they were absolutely fantastic. Great to work with, great to, you know, true professional Stuart Scott. Now, you know, it's just a, he was one of the nicest guys, most thoughtful guys. And, uh, you know, what I loved about both Stuart and Susie at that, you know, at that time and still today with Susie where they were both just diehard sports fans. And that was the great thing about um, a lot of people with whom I've worked over my, over the years is, you know, people were at ESPN because they love sports. They weren't at ESPN because they were looking to go somewhere, someplace else. It wasn't a stepping stone for anybody. It was the pinnacle. So um, everybody that was there were absolute sports fans. Everybody rooted for a different team, but everybody was a sports fan. So it was, you know, it was, a, it was there was a, you know, that that binded everybody who worked there together, and it was it was great. It was fun. 
And Keith, you know, Stuart had a very unique delivery style. It was fantastic to watch and listen to. How did how did the did the audience immediately you know catch on or gravitate to him, or or did it take I the think, audience some time to adjust? Yeah, I think it took a while. Uh, you know, you tell me. I'm you know I'm guessing you were watching. Uh, yeah, it was you know it was a little hard to tell in the control room because you know you're as you know you're worried about so many different things that you know you're listening to the to the show, but um, you know, you're not gaining any reaction from anybody because you got your head buried in a rundown or figuring out what's coming up next or getting ready to, you know, to invite the next guest on the show. So, um, but Stu had some Stuisms, that's for sure. You know, cooler than the other side of the pillow and booyah. And, uh, you know, I think that, uh, that, that ESPN two as a whole was such a, such an infant trying to find its legs. And then, you know, you had Stewart who was, you know, who was trying to, to be the face of that, that program. And, and a lot, and it was kind of like Susie was kind of like his straight man, to, to, you know, a little bit, a little bit of craziness, but, you know, I'd be lying to say we didn't have some meetings, some production meetings before and after shows to talk about, you know, are we crossing the line is, you know, do we need to tone Stu down a little bit? Uh, and then, they, but the, but the consensus was, you know, heck no, let's let him go. And, and see where this takes us. Kenny Maine is another talented guy who came up around that time. Talk about what you remember about working with Kenny. Oh my gosh. Uh, Kenny was, we had this, um, there was a rotate rotating group of, of producers. And uh, when you came in in the morning, you didn't know whether you were going to be producing sports night or we had these um, kind of like five minute cut-ins called sports smash and they were you know just updates basically you know um like the u.s bank update during golf or you know but they were you know during intermissions of hockey games or you know while you were going to break and getting ready for the the second period of something we do it you know we'd have a sports smash and um kenny was kenny there was kenny bill pito a number of guys but kenny was uh a kid I shouldn't say a kid. I mean, he was, wasn't much of a kid. I mean, he had come from the Seattle market. He had played um, football at UNLV behind Randall Cunningham, um, decided that he uh, wasn't going to make it in the NFL. So he got into sports television and was, he was a sportscaster in Seattle. And he was, you know, kind of this, this off the cuff, wild, crazy popular guy in the, in the Pacific Northwest and the folks at ESPN thought he'd be a perfect fit for ESPN two. And he, I, I don't know if I told you the story or not, but when he got to ESPN two and, you know, he was, you know, very funny. One of the wittiest guys I've ever been around smart as heck, great writer, just a lot of fun. You know, you were kind of looking, everybody was looking forward to what he was going to be like on television. And he got out on his first sports match. And luckily it was videotaped so we could do it. It wasn't live. Um, and he couldn't, he was so nervous that he couldn't deliver sports smash. He was sweating. He was he's stammering. He stopped numerous times. You know, we got to start over. Oh my God, I'm sorry. I screwed that up. And, um, you know, we were, everybody was like, oh my gosh, you know, what the heck's going on? And so finally I just, I went out in the studio and went up to him and I said, Kenny, look, you know, you, you just need to relax. First of all, it's on tape. So don't worry about it. And second of all, you've been doing this 
you know, for years in Seattle. This is no different. He goes, oh, yes, it is. It's ESPN. And I said, just treat it like it's no different. All you have to do is look into that camera and look and pretend you're talking to one person, not however many people in your mind you think you're talking to. And if you talk to that one person and deliver your lines, you'll be just fine. And he eventually, obviously, he turned into, I mean, the guy is a legend. But uh, those first couple of nights, there were, there were, again, you know, a couple of people huddled around a conference table wondering if they'd made a mistake in hiring Kenny Maine. And clearly they didn't. But it was, uh, he, was, he's, he's a, he was a crazy guy. He was a lot of fun to be around. And Keith, as you know, we also do a football show called Thursday Night Tailgate. And, and one of our frequent guests and a guy who's near and dear to our hearts is former Rams Pro Bowl quarterback Jim Everett. You were there on ESPN, too, when he and Rome got into it. Many people believe their confrontation was staged just to get ratings. But talk about what you remember about that situation. Uh, I remember I, I remember it happening. They were out in L.A. doing the Rome show, and we were in – Bristol. And, um, you know, we were, we had been charged at ESPN two with trying to be as irreverent as possible. We were, you know, we were the, the out of control little brother of ESPN two. And, um, you know, they, they just wanted us to always try and be envelope and to try and be as, you know, as irreverent as possible on the air without, you know, without going over the line. And, and, um, you know, we, we were, Rome show aired on on ESPN two, um, you know, right before Sports Night was going to come on, and the, the, you know, we didn't. Nobody knew. I, I I couldn't tell you to this day whether it was you know scripted or not. My, you know, part part of me thinks the conspiracy theorist in me thinks it had to have been, but I don't think to the extent that it ended up being. And, and, you know, cause Rome started out, um, you know, calling him Chris right off the bat because Jim Everett had a, you know, a, a, the perceived his perception, the perception of Jim Everett was that he was soft, that he, you know, he went down too easily when being pursued by a defensive lineman or a linebacker and Rome, you know, Rome was Rome. And whether that was true or not with Jim, which I always thought he was a great quarterback. He, you know, Jim Rome wasn't, he was going to latch onto that like a dog to a bone and he wasn't going to let it go. And so, you know, he kept calling him Chris and never finally said, if you call me Chris one more time, I'm, you know, you're going to be sorry. And so Rome, of course, said, well, what are you going to do about it, Chris? And over the table went Everett and, you know, it was just a, a mess. And um, the next day, we the, the whole culture of ESPN2 changed overnight. Um, the next day, we got the edict from on high that said, no more irreverence. We're going to start handling things like a straight-up sports cast and a straight-up sports show, and we're going to just do highlights, and we're going to just do scores, and, and no more, you know, funny graphics, and no more making fun of people. We're just – that's just not what we're about. So Jim Jim Rome and Jim Everett had the the, the – and it, they'll go down in history as the folks who, who changed uh, the culture of ESPN two uh, overnight. Even even though it would it would have had to have changed eventually, but um, that kind of precipitated things. It was that was another crazy time. There have been there have been some crazy times in my career. Boy, I've been lucky. <laughs> Indeed. 
So Keith, let's uh, let's talk a little golf, and we're on the heels here now of last week's uh, Presidents Cup. The American Young Guns blazed out to a quick and huge lead, and sort of cruised home, if you will. But talk about not only what we saw over the weekend, but also is is this a group of guys who can keep this sort of dominance going for a long time, or is this just a really really good moment in time? Wow, that that is a great question. Um, I, and my gut, my gut feeling, and my gut answer after you know watching all these guys play is that I I can't see it slowing down for a while. I mean, they're all so young and so talented. And you know, I don't know how Olin Brown he'll tell you later on when you chat with him. But I'm I personally, as a 62 year old um, guy who's been around the block a few times. I'm not a huge fan of the guys hanging around and, and congratulating each other after they win majors. I think for me personally, I think that Ricky Fowler should have been a little more upset that he didn't win the PGA championship as opposed to hanging around and congratulating his good friend, Justin Thomas. But I get where they're coming from. I mean, this, this, you know, this, this, the way that uh, the players have brought up, they were all, they've all played a ton of golf together. They're all friends. They've all, you know, spent, spent, you know, a lot of time on and off the golf course together. And I kind of get that, but you want, for me, again, as a, as a more conservative kind of uh, stick in the mud guy, I guess I, I would, I'd like a little more fire in that belly, you know, but um, I, I just, I don't, when are they going to not be good? (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's interesting to me, Keith, because one of the things, you know, we always want to go back and we always want to compare and we always want to look at, you know, like the big three, everyone sort of, you know, points back to the big three, right. With Nicholas Palmer and player, right. You know, we're waiting for the, you know, the next Nicholas Palmer rival. We were, we started talking about the big three a couple of years ago when we started to see some of these young guys, you know, round into form, but, you know, back in the day, and, and I don't know if it was this way for you, but you were, you were either a Nicholas guy, you were a Palmer guy, or you were a player guy. You didn't root for all three of them. You had your guy. Like for me, it was Nicholas, right? You know, other people and yeah. I'm from Pittsburgh, as you know, you know, other people are from around where I was from where they were Palmer guys, right? So yeah. you had your guy and you were sort of rooting against the other guys, but now it's sure. different with these guys because you're sort of, you know, they're all really good guys. You know, they're all happy for each other. Like you said a moment ago, so you could root for any of them and be okay with it. It's just, it's so different from I think what we had, you know, when in Tiger's era, you were either everyone loved Tiger or you were rooting hard against him. So this is sort right. of feels like an unprecedented time. I don't know. What do you think? I, I agree with that a hundred percent. I was a Palmer guy, um, you know, just because I, I don't, you know, I don't know why. I mean, I guess because, you know, when in my, my formative years, my early years in golf, he was, you know, he was the, he was the guy. And, uh, you know, I was a huge fan. I putted pigeon toed as a, you know, as a kid on the putting green, you know, just like Arnie did. And, but I, I think that, you know, I don't know the psychology of sports fans and athletes, but it's all, it seems like sports are more interesting and more compelling when there's somebody to not like as much as there's somebody to like, um, you know, and it's, I think it's the, it's the same in, you know, people, there are Patriots fans and there are people that hate the Patriots. There are Yankees fans 
and there are people that hate the Yankees. If you liked every major league team or every NFL team, you know, you wouldn't, it, it, it wouldn't be as interesting. And I think that's as, as talented and as good and, you know, as bright a future as all these guys have, I think the game in terms of the fan perspective suffers a little bit because there isn't that guy that you, that people don't want to win. Like you said, everybody, you know, it's like, it's okay. If Justin wins, oh, that's great. If, if, if um, Jordan wins, oh, terrific. If Ricky wins, wow, that'd be, that'd be really good. Dustin, I like him. You know, I mean, maybe Patrick Reed gets a little bit of, you know, people kind of, there's, you know, maybe a little bit of, maybe I don't like him so much, but even he is Captain America on team events. Right. So I don't know if need, it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next handful of years, whether we need that, that antagonist as much as we need the protagonist. And Keith, last time we talked about you being there in 95 when the Golf Channel launched. And, and I remember reading in your book, and again, it's called Cover Me Boys, I'm Going In. And that's exactly what you said in the moments right before the first ever show went live. Talk about that moment and what it was like for all of you sort of to make it, make the dream of a Golf Channel come true. Oh, uh, man. Um, I get, you know, you're just, just thinking about it, just having you say, you know, relate that, you know, those, that early story is I just got goosebumps. Um, it was, you know, I just, I can't, I can't believe how lucky I was to be, um, involved in that enterprise and be around so many passionate, um, talented people. And, you know, Joe Gibbs, not the football coach, auto racing guy, but this guy from Birmingham, Alabama, who had an idea and, convinced Arnold Palmer that it was a good idea. So Arnold got the tour involved and, and um, made sure that we had events to televise because the golf channel in 1990, you know, 1995 would have never been successful if we didn't have tournaments to cover. So Joe had to figure out a way to get the rights to televise whatever tournaments weren't already on TV. So he went to the PGA tour and there were a couple of, PJ tour events that weren't on TV. There was the Nike tour at the time that wasn't on TV. There were a couple of champions tour events that wasn't on TV and he cut an LPGA and he cobbled together a domestic tournament schedule of about 28 or 29 tournaments that really gave, you know, the golf channel a, a, a great reason for being. And we actually, I was hired in October of 1994. We launched in January of 1995 and we actually did we rolled out television production trucks to three events just to practice. Um, two of them were Gary player tour events in Florida. And we set up scaffolding, ran cable, had the trucks. I mean, the whole nine yards practiced because this was a group of people that had never worked together before. And, you know, we were trying to, you know, launch a, a television network. So we did that. And then the, the last, um, rehearsal event we did was the 1994 Q school at uh, Greenleaf uh, just outside of Orlando. And you, first of all, the player backlash <laughs> of us having television cameras, television golf carts, production people, announcers running around during Q school, you'd have thought that we were, you know, the worst people in the world because this was like, you know, uh, the inner sanctum. I mean, nobody bothered anybody at Q school. That was like the, you know, the most, the most 
difficult, the most gut-wrenching, the most nervous time for a lot of these guys because they were playing for their PGA Tour. So there we were, you know, we were there with handheld cameras in the middle of the fairways and um, we got a couple of dirty looks. But in, at that point in time, I the first time Joe Gibbs was in the truck and before we went on the air with our Q school rehearsal, um, you know, we ran the tees and the opening we cobbled together an opening and Joe was standing right over my shoulder. And it was like the, the look of pride on his face when he saw the television monitors light up. And I just, I don't know where it came from, but I just pressed the button that spoke to all the announcers and all the camera guys. And I just said, cover me, boys. I'm going in. <laughs> and <laughs> it kind of broke the tension a little bit. And Joe started laughing. And I, but I thought, you know what? This is, we're all in this together, boys. And, you know, I got your back, but you better, you know, you better have mine. And so it was, and so I said that, that's what I said to start before the start of every show for, 18 years. I figured it would be a good title for the book. (laughs) And it is. And Keith, you were sort of trying to do some things that were outside of the box, right? And how you guys covered golf tournaments and those tournaments, they were, they were yours to produce. What was, did you feel, was there a lot of pressure on you? Because, you know, if you didn't do it right, you may not be able to build a viewership and then, you know, the channel may ultimately not be successful or was it the opposite? There were no expectations, no pressure. You could do whatever you wanted to do and, and, and go make something completely new and different. Um, that's, that's a terrific question. And I guess I, my answer honestly would be both. Um, there were, there were times when, you know, I felt like it was I, early on. I mean, we had a great director, a guy named Emmett Lochran, who is still directing golf, um, for the PGA tour live stuff. And, uh, you know, we had a, a great team and it was, they, th- thankfully the folks at the golf channel, Bob Greenway and Joe Gibbs and Gary Stevenson at the time and uh, Mike Whalen, basically after the first couple of shows, when we got on the air on time, we got off the air on time, we got all the commercials in and nobody, you know, there was, <laughs> it was like we showed golf shots and everybody was happy they basically came to me and said, you go do what you do because we have a million other things to worry about, or worry about back here in Orlando. And thank goodness we have you guys out there to do these golf tournaments because we don't have to worry about that. So they gave us a tremendous amount of leeway to have fun, to try new things. Um, you know, you go around and, and we also thought, well, heck, this is great because we didn't really know how many people were watching. So we figured, why not try, you know, why not experiment a little bit? Why not try some different people as announcers? Why not try some different things on the golf course? Um, But then we had big shows, you know, like the Arnold Palmer Golf Gala, which was something that Mr. Palmer put together every year to benefit uh, the Children's Hospital up in La Trobe. Um, It was a telling, it was a turning point for the Golf Channel because basically the Golf Channel was set up as a pay TV, like an HBO and Joe figured that subscribers would fuel and pay for the network. And early on, they realized that they weren't going to get enough subscribers and they had to go and figure out a way to get on basic cable. So the way they did that was that they made a deal with Mr. Palmer to televise the Arnold Palmer golf gala. And they convinced the cable operators, the cable owners that were investors, early investors in the golf channel to open up their, their, cable networks for this one 
event to let us to let us televise and let us broadcast the Arnold Palmer Golf Gala on Baser Cable. Um, and it was Davis Love, Tom Lehman, Arnold Palmer, and Tiger Woods. And this was 19, this was before Tiger won the Masters, but he had won on tour. So he was, um, you know, he was still at the early stages of his phenomenal career. And, uh, and that really turned the table. It got enough people watching and all of a sudden cable companies, cable companies picked up the golf channel on basic cable and really turned the corner. So, um, so to answer your original question, there were there were there were times when we were really nervous, and there were times when we weren't so nervous and just having a ball. Um, but um, I would do every single, I would live every single minute over again. Keith, one more before we let you go. And and one of the innovative ideas that you came up with was a way to measure a player's heart rate when trying to make a putt <laughs> to win a golf tournament. And you got a company to develop that device for you. Talk about that. Yeah, there were, uh, you know, that was, that was fun. It was a company out of Pittsburgh. They worked for the University of Pittsburgh. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool? You always hear about, you know, how, whether, you know, you wonder about whether a player's nervous or not. And, and I always thought it, that I, and I, I'm still surprised they haven't done it. I would love to see the heart rate, a heart rate monitor on a hockey goalie, um, just to see what his, why, you know, if we can figure out the technology, to get a player's to be able to measure a player's heart rate during the course of a round, wouldn't that be cool? So these guys worked with us and they came up with, you know, the, the problem was back then, you know, this was 15 years ago or so. And, you know, the technology was still in its infancy. So whatever they came up with always involved having to tape at least four sensors on the player's body, on his skin. And, you know, the, the, also the, the, the thing that monitored the heart rate was about the size of a, probably an iPhone, iPhone five now. So they had to attach, we had to attach that to their belt. Um, and all these, you know, these things were hooked up to them. And it was, you know, I mean, you can imagine trying to get somebody to wear it during a golf tournament was, was, uh, a challenge. <clears throat> But what we did was when we were televising Canadian tour events, um, one of the deals was we got to, to, we got two sponsors exemptions. So the golf channel could pick two players to play in the Canadian tour events that we televised. And part of the deal that we told the players that we chose was if you're going to play, you either have to wear a microphone or a heart rate monitor. <laughs> so, um, the, and the first time, the first Canadian tour event out, and this is, you know, we, uh, there was a guy named Eamon Brady who said he would wear the microphone. And on Thursday he wore the microphone and I think he shot 65. So he's like, I'll wear it again. And he ended up <laughs> winning the golf tournament wearing a microphone. Wow. And that was the opening. So then we no no player could say, well, you know, I can't, I can't play good if I'm wearing this microphone because Eamon Brady was, you know, he was, he was a winner with it on. But the heart rate monitor was cool because, you know, we got we got it going, and the and the highlight of the heart rate monitor was Jason Bone, and it was another Canadian tour event, and he liked the idea of the technology. He was, he wore it one round and ended up making eight birdies in a row to tie the wow. the Canadian tour record, and it was the most amazing thing, Chris. You would think that he would get more and more nervous, and the numbers that we got back from the computer showed that he actually got less and less nervous 
he would his heart rate was went lower and lower with each successive birdie and we were like flabbergasted that that would happen so that was fun and we found out that the most time that when the heart rate spiked it was right after a shot so it wasn't before the shot it was right after impact as the ball was in the air and the player was trying to figure out if it was going to go where he wanted it to go so that was where the heart rate usually spiked the highest um yeah, so we had fun with the heart rate monitor. We had fun with the jugs gun. We had a baseball jugs gun. It was kind of the early track man. We measured ball speed with the jugs gun. And uh, um, we had a lot of fun. We just, you know, we tried everything. And, again, thank goodness for the folks at the Golf Channel that just said, go for it. So, um, you know, we had a ball. Keith, before we let you go, remind our listeners about how they can get a copy of your two books and then how they can stay up to date with all the things that you're doing either online or over social media. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Uh, the books are available on Amazon um, or at Keith Hirschland.com. K-E-I-T-H-H-I-R-S-H-L-A-N-D.com. And uh, thanks to you, Chris, I've, I've had a resurgence in sales of cover me boys. So I'm, I appreciate that. Uh, I appreciate you having me on and I appreciate you talking about the book and those are some fun times. And if people really are interested in behind the scenes of TV and are fans of the golf channel, um, there are a whole bunch of stories about the early days of the golf channel. So, um, and I write a blog. I haven't written anything in the blog for a little bit, but I'm about to. So uh, I have a blog there and I just finished my third book. So that's about to go to the publisher and things are great. A a A sequel to big flies. (laughs) <laughs> it's completely it's another mystery but it's not it's not a sequel so okay well keith thank you so much for your time tonight you know it's been fantastic getting to know you over the last five or six weeks i can't thank you enough for you know what you've done you know done for this show and, and the support that you've had for for me and the show and and uh for your time coming back for a second time i hope you'll continue to come back because there's a million stories from cover me boys that i'd love to you know get your thoughts on plus you know what's going on around the game of golf outside of that but thank you so much for being here tonight it's my pleasure i'm happy to come back anytime you'd want you want to chat thanks chris all right right. thanks keith take care you you bet That is Keith Hirschland. Again, his uh, last name is spelled H-I-R-S-H-L-A-N-D. So KeithHirschland.com. And folks, I'm telling you, you know, I, I am not a reader. It's just not, you know, my wife is a fantastic reader. She loves to read. I am not a reader. But when I got Cover Me Boys, I'm going in and started to read that book. I, I just couldn't put it down. It's it's so many great stories back to back to back throughout the entire book. So I highly recommend it. Go check it out online. You'll see on amazon.com. It's got a lot of great reviews there as well. And Keith is fantastic. I look forward to having him back on the show again real soon. 